హలో హలో వెల్కమ్ టు అనదర్ ఎపిసోడ్ ఆఫ్ బీ ఓపెన్ అండ్ అథెంటిక్ విత్ రోహిత్ టుడే వీ హ్యావ్ మైక్ ఫైన్స్టైన్ విత్ ఎస్ హూ ఈస్ యు నో హూ ఈస్ అ లాంగ్ టైమర్ ఇన్ ద ఇండస్ట్రీ హూ పొసెసెస్ ఎ గ్రేట్ వెల్త్ ఆఫ్ నాలెడ్జ్ యు నో విజ్డమ్ అండ్ అండ్ ఫ్రమ్ ఫ్రమ్ హిస్ ఎక్స్పీరియన్స్ ఇన్ వైడ్ రేంజ్ ఆఫ్ రోల్స్ త్రూ అవుట్ హిస్ కెరియర్ ఐ నో ఇట్స్ ఇట్స్ ఇంపాసిబుల్ ఫర్ మీ టు బ్రింగ్ యు నో టు గ్యాదర్ యాజ్ మచ్ యు నో ఆల్ ద నాలెడ్జ్ ఇన్ ఇన్ వన్ ఎపిసోడ్ బట్ ఐ ట్రై మై బెస్ట్ టు you know uh, capture you know whatever i can and and learn learn from you know mike's experience you know i i had uh, you know a couple of conversations and i was i was you know blown away with with all the insights and information that i got which is another reason uh, i i tried you know i asked mike to be a host and and he, he gladly agreed uh, thank you very much uh, you know mike i know you know it's a, it's a busy season and uh, uh, things are things are hectic thanks for taking you know time and effort uh, you know uh, to talk uh, to talk with me on the show appreciate all all the effort sure happy to be here looking forward to it perfect Let, let's let's get started so uh, mike uh, do you want to start with a quick introduction you know on your and uh, you know give some glimpse of your journey so far yeah i can do that um you know if you think about it at the high level i've like a serial entrepreneur six startups 10 years of venture capital but when you kind of look at the path it certainly wasn't straight it wasn't something that i had planned so i'll just walk through my kind of bio very very quickly um if that's okay so um you know i went to mit i have a software engineering degree i started my career as a software engineer at a small company we were writing video games for the old atari game system the company went through some changes and i ended up going from engineering into sales we sold products for the early macintosh computers at that point and that kind of began my whole business journey led me through several startups several different roles uh sales marketing product management um you know some of the companies were quite successful some not as much but i was lucky enough to have two pretty large successes um uh, that you know this kind of brought me through basically 17 years of my career then i went into the venture capital world in the late 90s and participated in you know the bubble that happened in the late 90s and the bubble bursting in the early two, 2000s stayed in the venture capital world till about 2010 and then uh, after you know the next the next bubble burst and I ended up working my way out of that I decided to go back into the startup world and I've done two more startups uh both in you know sales and marketing as well as um chief executive officer roles and then for the last 4 years i've been working at amazon web services uh doing venture capital business development basically managing our relationships with venture firms and their portfolio companies wow great you know uh such a uh you know a uh, wide range of experiences right you know sales product management and a degree in, in computer science and uh you know going through a couple of bubbles and and all the uh, vc and you know startup uh, experiences wow um, such a such an incredible journey uh, I, i you know i would say uh, so you know one you know one question i have you know for you is uh, this wide you know this is uh, you know wide range of experience and at the same time you know uh, it you worked in lot of uh, you know high impact roles so particularly in the startup world which also means that you know the stress levels are normally high you know at least as far as my understanding goes because you got to you know keep on hustling you know keep the revenue up you know if it if it is sales you know you know keep the numbers high and in things like this so i think it's a, i think it's a lot more intensive than uh, 
the regular corporate world or you know in, in the, than the regular job so how are you you know able to handle all the all the stress you know particular and going through the bubbles i think it's it's a lot of impacting you know uh, it's it impacts a lot um, uh, it impacts in our mental health in in, in a <laughs> great way so but you're still in the industry and still going for it so what what keeps you going and and how did you handle all of it well wow, that's a big question so i mean you're definitely right there's a lot of stress involved in these jobs and i think um you know the thing that really kept me going in startups was i liked that in, that excitement you know is what i realized i kind of stumbled into startups that first job that i mentioned i wasn't necessarily looking for a startup job it just sounded like a fun job yeah. and when i realized because i had spent a summer before while i was still in college working at a very big company and i hated it and then i had this startup experience which was super exciting and i really worked hard it was a lot of hours um but i just got energy from it right so i think the excitement the commitment the fun stuff we were doing the people i was working with those are the things that really energize me those are the things that keep me going i did have to learn pretty early in my career about managing stress you know I, at that same company that i mentioned we pivoted to go into the macintosh environment and we're making products for the original Macintosh computers in you know the mid 80s the very early days of the uh, Macintosh and um, the company ended up having a gigantic quality problem like really really bad quality problem like we were selling hard drives for the Macintosh and a customer took a hammer to their hard drive and sent us a box full of demolished parts to show us how mad they were at us this was not a fun you know i mean if you want stress yeah. <laughs> there was a lot of stress um you know because i had customer relationships internationally then i was doing international sales and we had to support our international partners fix our problems you know support our partners and and get and get our business back on track and it was a huge amount of stress and i had kind of a little mini nervous breakdown in fact during this time and uh you know uh, uh took a trip out to california rented a car and drove it up the coastline to Oregon smoking cigarettes which I had never smoked in my life so it was very kind of a, it was a weird thing but i you know i kind of realized when i came back it's like i can't let the job get to me and that was the first of maybe multiple things over the course of my career that helped me make some kind of a wall between the work part and the personal part and although i really passionate about my jobs and work hard and you know willing to work extra hours or whatever there's a line that i won't cross in terms of letting it intrude on my personal life and i'm glad that i learned to draw that line and i don't think i would be able to keep doing everything i've done if i hadn't been able to draw that line early in my career it's like a survival mechanism basically but it's not always easy to do and i think particularly in a startup where there's you know literally sometimes kind of life and death of the company um on the line you know we're running out of money how do we make payroll next week you know these are real challenges and um you know but i was able to compart compartmentalize that stress somewhat um so that i could kind of survive it and i mean but i like but like you know like i said earlier i kind of thrive on that excitement energy you know maybe it's I mean risk to a certain extent but to me it's more opportunity it's really um seeing where we're going and most of the times when i've 
left jobs, it's because I didn't really believe anymore that we were going to get mm. to where we were trying trying to get to. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, you know, you know, multiple things here, right? You know, one is uh, you get the energy from and the excitement. You know, you know, you are letting the environment and the people you work with energize you. I think which is the reason you know you kept going on with the startups and start uh, you know multiple startups you know throughout the career even though they are high impact you know highly stressful uh, I think that is one you know take away because if you are not energized or if you are not you know really enthusiastic that may not be the thing for us because it it varies from uh, you know person to person and the second thing that I want to you know bring bring up is you know based on what you said it's not that you know you were able to handle it well in the sense that you know it's you had to go through a lot of stress and then realize that hey this is getting into my life and you know this this is going to uh, if this if this if that continues uh, you know you may not survive in the long in the long run you know so that is something that you realized early on and and you were able to draw the lines i think uh, which is not definitely not easy because you know i just work you know at amazon um, and then i you know i just do this podcasting and a little bit of other stuff then i already feel that you know work is getting into my you know life and i i just don't know how to draw the lines at certain times right you know um, and when it comes to the real startup world you know when you are you know thinking about you know <laughs> next payroll for you know hundreds of employees or you know when you are thinking about surviving for uh you know one just one more month or you know a few more months so i i i just don't see how we can you know draw those lines or you know come compartmentalize the you know work and life you know i just don't know how to you know how to approach that so you know can you give us a little more insight into how you were able to do it so that uh, you know uh, we all can learn from it yeah i'll do my best i think you know obviously everyone's different so the sure. the things that work for me may not work for everybody else but i think one of the challenges when you're an entrepreneur is in order to be successful you need to have an incredible amount of passion and commitment to what you're doing but too much passion and commitment will cause you to lose ob- objectivity about your business so you won't listen when people are telling you hey you should fix this and maybe you should pivot over here you know because you just believe everything is good the way that you have envisioned it but you also kind of lose that ability to manage the stress right because you just kind of go over the edge of the cliff so for me i think you know i've got things that i do i try to exercise because i think exercise really reduces my my stress i'm really lucky to have a very supportive wife and and family who has supported you know all these crazy things that i've done but also is pretty clear like hey you know i think you're going too too far and you know i think that's been helpful at certain times in my uh you know life and but i really think it was just kind of developing this ability to have a bit of distance without losing the passion and i think it was i was much better at it much later in my career after i went from being an entrepreneur and became a venture capital investor almost by definition you need to have some distance from the companies because you've got to be objective should we invest more you know money into this company and particularly as we went through these bubbles bursting particularly the one in uh, the early two, 2000s you know yeah. companies that made a lot of sense before the bubble burst didn't make any sense after the bubble burst so you've got to be objective about that and i really learned to be much more objective about the companies about what you know uh whatever i was doing so that when i went back to be an entrepreneur after that I think I was much more effective at really 
kind of creating that distance. And I think I was a better entrepreneur because I could question our assumptions. I could question what we were doing, not because I didn't believe in it, but because I wanted to make it better. And, you know, there were definitely people at some of these companies who didn't want to necessarily hear those questions because they were kind of going over the edge of the cliff. But the questions I asked had to be asked and and needed to be asked. And um, so I think it's a maturation process. I'm, you know, I don't think it's easy to get back to your core question, but it's something people should really try to practice. And there's things you can do, like, do you have the discipline to really not work at all over, over the weekend or to not work after a certain amount of time every day, six o'clock at night, whatever deadline you want to set. I mean, I do some work over the weekends at times and I do some work in the evenings, but I'm perfectly capable of not doing that. And I think, you know, practicing that kind of discipline saying, you know what, this week I'm not working in the evening or this weekend I'm not working. I'm going to focus on my time with my family and really be, you know, 100% present for that. I think if you can practice that kind of discipline, then it's easier to maintain this distance, if you would, from the stress of the startup and kind of put it in the box, leave it there at the office. I th- maybe it's a little harder now where everyone's working at home because uh, <laughs> you're not really leaving it at the office. <laughs> but I think those are some of the steps someone could probably try. Yeah, perfect. Uh, I, I can totally see why they you know, work in a certain way, right? Because I mean, particularly uh, the external factors such as, you know, going to gym or, uh, you know, you know, having supportive family or supporting a network around, you know, can help us, uh, definitely help us. And at the same time, you know, I think the discipline is, is the key word here. Uh, because at certain times we have to be able to draw the line that, hey, I'm not going to work after 6 p.m., which also means that you need to put, you know, be more focused while working during the day, you know, just so that your work doesn't flow into the evening. Because normally when I think that, hey, I'm going to work till 10 p.m. today, I kind of be a little, you know, uh, complacent maybe for those duration and, you know, just drag the same work, which I could have finished by 6 p.m. into 10 into 10 p.m., and which also, you know, is not, not the way. And at sometimes, you know, while solving the problems and, and uh, you know, at, at, a, at a bigger stage, you know, I think we need, that break just so that when we come back you know we look at it at a fresh mind uh, it's it sometimes has, has helped help me as well um but but you know it's it's really i think it comes with the maturity as you were saying and and uh, over time um as you know as long as we have the enough discipline and we know enough intent to practice that discipline throughout uh, uh like like you said i think will really help us okay that, that that's a great insight thanks for that so, and another thing that, you know, want to uh, talk about, right? Um, you said, uh, you know, asking the right questions in a startup is, is uh, very important. Uh, at the same time, you know, when looking back at your career, you know, you, you are from computer science and then, you know, sales, and then you have done product management and, and you know, you, guys, you have been switching roles quite a bit, mm-hmm. which also means that there are quite a few things to uh, learn and be, you know, become good at it, right? Because when you are at the leadership level, it's not that uh, you can just get a gist of it and move forward. You have to understand it so clearly and you have to gain that skill so fast, uh, as far as my understanding goes again. But so, just just curious to know your thoughts on how you are able to navigate you know learning because even in your first startup you immediately moved into sales and and at the the leadership level so i'm not even sure how how that is possible and how you survived us at there uh so can can you shed some light on this 
Sure. Um, so that first situation with that first startup, let me just tell kind of a bit more of the story because I think it will help frame the answer. So as I mentioned, the company was doing video games um, and I started off as a frontline software engineer and then I became like an engineering manager and I was managing all of our software engineers. This was, you know, I'd only been working um, a couple of years, but everyone was all pretty young at this at this company. We were faced with like a major outside crisis in that, believe it or not, the video game market crashed in the mid 80s and Atari almost went out of business. They were our customer. We licensed all of our games to Atari. And so we, we had to find something else to do quickly because our main cash source was gone. Yeah. So we had been playing around with the very first Macintosh computers that came out in 1984. And we actually had been writing a game for, for that. And so we finished that game project. But then some of the engineers in the company came up with that idea of doing this you know, hard drive and build it into the Macintosh, even though it wasn't designed for it. Hence those quality problems you know, later that I mentioned before. But um, we needed people to go into sales because now we needed to build our own distribution channels for this product because you know, we didn't have that before. And I just volunteered to go into sales because it sounded fun. Um, you know, I could talk more about that, but in terms of learning sales, um, the company hired a very experienced leader for sales, a person with a very kind of old school, formal IBM training. And he was a mentor to me. Um, he was pretty tough, but very fair and a very good person, but really high expectations and very high standards. And you know, I responded well to that. You know, for example, you know, this is back in the 80s, but we had to wear a suit to the office every day because he firmly believed that when you're talking on the phone to the customer, if you're wearing a business suit, you will talk differently and you could never convince him otherwise. Now, the world has obviously changed a lot since then, but, you know, some people bristled at that. I said, I'm going for it. And I bought a bunch of suits. I only had one. I had to buy more. <laughs> and I started wearing a suit every day. And I wore a suit every day for several years. Um, but I just kind of bought into the approach. And I think, you know, he was such a good mentor. And I learned so much about business and how to deal with customers. It really shaped my philosophy. Um, and so I don't think I could have done this transition without a great mentor such as that. And I was lucky that the mentor was basically hired into the company in order to teach us. Yeah. Um, haven't had too many other mentors in the entrepreneurial side of things. And some of these other transitions from sales to product management and marketing, it was really more, I was doing parts of those jobs as he went. So even though I was in sales, like one of the things that I had to do because I was doing international sales is we had to make international versions of our product. They needed some hardware differences. They needed different international certifications. And there was no one to drive this inside the company, but I really needed it to hit my sales targets. So I became the product manager for the international stuff as like a sideline, right? But I learned the product, the product management process and how to do it, at least at some level. And so that's just an example of how, you know, you kind of get exposure to a different role, but then over time you have the ability to actually, actually do that role. And that's one of the beauties of startups is that, you know, people wear many hats, it's fluid, you know, I don't think I could have done this transition if it wasn't a startup company. If it was in a big company, 
they would have laid off the engineers and that would have been the end of me, right? So, uh, but, you know, because it was a startup, there was more flexibility and, you know, they trusted me because of what I had done as an engineer and as a manager. So they're willing to give me that shot as a salesperson. Gotcha. I think it's more of, you know, an adaptability and, you know, going all in uh, and, and glad that, you know, you had a mentor and uh, who shaped up the career uh, in particularly in sales. Uh, I think, you know, um, that also explains the role of, uh, you know, having a good and great mentor, right? Because um, if you don't know what the bar is, you know, we, we are the, what the standard, high standard is. We, uh, we, we don't even know when I mean, we can't even plan to get there, uh, I guess. So I think, uh, you know, but, but the lessons to take away here are, you know, being adaptable, you know, flexible and, and going all in and, and, uh, you know, uh, and, and, you know, having a ownership, right? Because it's not, you know, uh, typically you can just complain that, Hey, I know I need one more person who manages the product, uh, you know, uh, for internationally or things like that. But the fact that you jumped in and, and, uh, you know, just taking up multiple roles, you know, multiple, uh, kind of multiple jobs you know in a single company i think i think that's great and and i definitely agree that you know if not for the startup world there right. is no way uh yeah no way uh it's it's possible in any elsewhere so uh and and you know among all these experiences right uh and and uh, i think it also uh kind of a mind shift, a mind, you know, mindset shift. And, and there are like quite a few experiences that you uh, had, uh, you know, be it in your first company or later, or, you know, um, a, a, among all the, you know, when, when you turn into VC role, I'm sure like you had to go through multiple um, in investments and, you know, being objective there. So what, which one is, you know, your f favorite experience so far and mm. what is the one that helped you learn more? Is, is it the first company that we are talking? Are, are there, you know, any, many more uh, incredible you know, journeys and the similar, you know, uh, crazy journeys that you had to go through? Well, it's kind of like more than one answer because my favorite wasn't necessarily the one where I learned the most, but it was the most yeah. fun and the most satisfying. Yeah. So I can tell you about that one. I've actually learned a lot at almost every job. Um, sure. And, you know, we can talk about that over, over time. But the one that was the favorite was one of the mm -hmm. startups I was at. Uh, I was one of the very early people at the company and I was hired in as, you know, VP of product management to help shape the company's actual product strategy. Like we knew the kind of product that we wanted to build because we had raised some venture money, but we needed someone to work with engineering on all the fine points, the details, the product requirements and kind of adapted as we went. And we had a phenomenal team, engineering, um, was very well run. It was probably the best run engineering team I've ever worked with. They really managed to a schedule. We probably changed more than half the features of the product from what we thought we were going to build mm -hmm. um, as we learned from customers what they needed. And the engineering team was able to adapt the deliverables in the schedule. And we had such great give and take. As if I would say, hey, we really need this feature. And they would say, we could do it, but we might have to drop this or this to get it done, are you willing to live with that trade-off? I could decide yes or no, but if I said yes, we would make that trade-off. And I mean, I just never worked in an environment where it's so open and that collaboration is so open. Sometimes engineering and product management can be kind of enemies, like because no one really understands what the other side's trying to achieve. This was a case where we were partners. Like we all wanted the same thing. They had their role, I had my role. We understood and we respected each other's roles. 
but we were all working for the same end. And that's kind of why this was one of my favorite experiences. Um, we also just performed extremely well. You know, the engineering team delivered the product within three days of the original ship date that was just made up when we raised the money from the VCs and then not hired anybody. We picked a ship date and we shipped it only three days later than that, which as you know, is kind of unheard of. <laughs> but even better, the product was of incredible feature depth and quality. We had a major airline customer that was one of our beta testers. And during the beta test, they sent us a check to buy the product. And they said, I don't know why you're still testing this. This is done, it's great. Wow. So, I mean, that's just a testament to how strong the product was. and. You know, luckily this all paid off. The company had a very successful exit. We were acquired. We were only in business for like 15 months from start start to finish. And we shipped wow. like a product for, you know, revenue, sold the company successfully and became a successful division inside the acquiring company that built a very, very large business for them. So that was super satisfying. I didn't stay all the way to the end after we were acquired. I only stayed about a year after the acquisition, sure. but it was very satisfying to be there from the beginning. And it, just, it was really just, you know, comes down to the people. And one of the things that I really did learn from that job, you know, to talk about learnings is the people, right? So that was so satisfying. Obviously, we, I think that we built a great product and it was a great business and we made a lot of money for the investors. We made, we made money for ourselves. That's all great. Yeah. But it was the people. I'm still friends with people from that team. You know, we all talk about what an awesome experience it was. It was just clicking on all cylinders, you know, and you don't have that happen very often. And so, you know, that's why that was the most satisfying. And I've never had any other experience like it, even though I've had a lot of other good ones, yeah. never anything that's quite at that level. For sure. You know, I can see that because it, it, I think it is worked to perfection in, in multiple ways, be it the team or the, you know, features or the timeline, uh, you know, because, you know, <laughs> even at, at my work, uh, if I have to deliver a project on time, I still struggle to deliver it on time because of various reasons, you know, working with product, you know, working with, you know, collaborative teams and things like that. So there, there's a delay, but if you ship the product in like, you know, three days after, you know, from the date that you committed before the one year, I think I'm not even sure whether that's even possible, <laughs> but you, you proved it. Uh, so I think here there are so many things that uh, I think we can learn from this. Uh, but one thing that I want to ask is coming to the people. So hiring the right team is the key here, but again, uh, hiring perfect folks for each job, you know, beat engineering uh, side or the product side, it's, it's because sometimes it, it, can mess up in one or the other uh, roles and it which eventually delays and lags the product. So it's not always feasible. But how do you think the team can be built in such a way that it works to the you know perfection or you know it's not that we they have to be perfect in, in multiple sense. It's just that even the culture for that matter, right? You know, how do you hire the team uh, and then build the culture in such a way that this can be replicated in, 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 in many startups? Yeah, so the real keyword there is culture. So um, first of all, even though we kind of achieved all this and hit the schedule, it certainly wasn't easy and it was a lot of hard work by everybody. But I think it starts with the culture. And this is something that I really learned from this company is that great appreciation for like a positive culture. Because I had been in some negative culture situations before, even with some success. 
but this was the really positive culture. And I think it started with the partnership that I had with like the VP of engineering. I mean, we had a good, you know, CEO, et cetera, but the whole company was basically engineering and me, you know, we had, we hired a couple of salespeople at the end. We never got that far in sales because we sold, sold the company early on. Um, so I think, you know, me and the VP of engineering just had such a good relationship and we set the culture of how we were going to interact and work together that everyone else followed the same line. So, you know, sometimes people can grouse if they don't like the decisions that are made. We would talk about it. We got people to understand why we made the decision that we made and we quelled the dis the discontent. So I think it was just a very open, direct culture. We had to hire people that fit into that culture. You know, it wasn't as explicit of a culture as I would do now. If I was doing the whole thing over again, I could have been more explicit about what it was we wanted. It was an element of luck that me and the VP of engineering just clicked like that. I'd never met him before. It clicked like that, that we would just work together so well. And that set, that set the tone, but it really does come down to the culture because we had a wide range of personalities working at the company um, from very outspoken to very quiet, et cetera. But I think everyone kind of bought into the culture and the approach and the VP of engineering who was really hiring all the people, it was just me on the marketing side for the most part until the very end. Um, he just was really clear of what he was looking for from the engineers. Right. So in terms of the time commitment. And he also had boundaries around personal life. He made it really clear, like, you know, we're not working past this hour. I mean, they worked into the evening, but we're not working beyond that. And, you know, at startups, people can work around the clock and we're not working over the weekends unless we are like, you know, behind schedule. So if you stay on schedule, you'll never have to work over the weekend, yeah. right? And so it just really was clear. And that just set that tone and he was on top of the schedule. So if something, I mean, look, people fell behind, things were more com complex than we had thought. This happens all the time with every software project, but he was so on top of it that he could be there and on top of it as it was happening. So before things had slipped more than a couple of days, so you could react. Should we change the feature set? Should we add, shift the resources around? What should we do? Maybe this feature is way more com complex than we thought, do we need it? And he would come to me and say, if you want to keep this as defined, it's going to take a lot longer than we thought. What can we do? Can we trim it down? Can we drop it? But those are great discussions. Yep. And you know, if I had said that feature is so critical, we, you know, it's so critical. We've got to add a month to the schedule to ship it. We would have done that. Um, but we really, really trying to hit that schedule. And ultimately, we were just able to solve all these problems. Um, mm. You know collaboratively gotcha so it's it's uh, you know the way you know that i observed this is a couple of you know great leaders setting up the tone for the company and for the culture uh, for the people around so that the positive environment uh, and positive and open you know environment has you know uh, is is just possible because of just just uh, two leaders you know working together and and just clicking together uh, which is great and and i also uh, you know um, see that you know how one you know or maybe the vp the engineering vp or you know someone uh, who is uh, able to hire all those engineers and and uh, who is able to you know be clear um, on the you know timelines or commitments and at the same time um, being on top of things as a leader right because for example uh, if you are working i mean 
since leaders or vps have like have multiple things to handle it's not always feasible to uh, be on top of everything and even if it's for example the example that you gave right uh, even if it slipped away you know for two days you know he's able to you know uh, you know catch it and then you know fix it instantly so i'm not even sure that, you know how how um, uh possible or how, how feasible is it these days because there is just so many distractions and when particularly when there is so much going around um well i think i think that's do, do you think that's even yeah, it's an interesting question mm-hmm. the world has changed certainly yeah. like we didn't really have as much stuff we didn't have social social media so this just to put this in context <laughs> this was uh 19 you know november of 96 to january of 98 oh. those were the 15 months So the internet was there because our product used the internet, but it was still very early days, yep. and certainly not social media. So, you know, I think, and we didn't have cell cell phones for most for most people. So I think you know, there's definitely fewer distractions. But I mean, people could distract themselves a hundred different ways then too. I think it's really driving home the point about the 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 uh, time. Mm-hmm. So for his for his engineering meetings. like all the whole engineering team would come in and I would I would go as well because it was all very open and there would be a copy of the schedule in front of everyone's chair when they walked in just in case they had forgotten the schedule which they definitely had not <laughs> yeah <laughs> but there was there was a copy of the schedule and everyone every task that every person had to do was broken down into something no more than 3 3 days long so it was broken down in a very granular set and sometimes less than that and you had to go through your milestones for this current period and demonstrate that you had completed it like i you know i ran this test you can look here it is it's running whatever it is and we went through every single person if someone said i'm not going to make it then we would dig into why not in a not in you know yeah. accusatory yeah. way constructive because he trusted the team yeah. and people would say things like oh it turned out to be way more complex or integrating it with this was harder than i thought it was going to be or i found i have to write this whole other thing that i did not anticipate to really make this work and he'd say okay great let's spec that out and we'll put it into the schedule and then i will work with mike or the other rest of the team and we'll figure out how we can kind of accommodate shift things around we'll take something else off your plate and put it onto someone else's plate or maybe mike will agree we can drop this feature or whatever just to stay on top of it so no one felt bad about bringing up facts right i think that's a very important um thing is like people shouldn't be punished for telling the uh, truth yep. right and so if you just objective and say here's why this was way more complicated than we thought when we spec'd it out that's just a fact right okay maybe we should have seen that before but you know it's a startup and we're going fast and these these things can be missed and so rather than getting upset and yelling and screaming and telling them that they had to work all night for 3 days in a row to get it done he would just take it at face value and come up with a plan and make those people part of the plan yeah. right and that way people were comfortable bringing these issues up and he was good at solving them and that's how we stayed on track and i've just never been in an in, in an engineering environment that was like it and it was totally open to me i was on the product management side i was in on all these discussions i would participate i would make suggestions maybe we could chop this little part of the feature off yeah. like maybe we can live without that does that save time and you know just very interactive collaborative approach and 
I think that you could still do that today. I don't know why you couldn't do that today. Um, sure. But you know, in, 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 in an ideal world, because you know, whatever you're saying, it just feels like the real you know, ideal world to me. Uh, I've only been in it once, right? Yeah. So to be clear, yeah, it's yeah. not like, you know, yeah. not like I've got, and you know, I don't even know the other companies that this, you know, VP of engineering did. I don't know if he ever had that same level of success yeah. with the team too. It was a combination of factors, sure. me and him and the team. Yeah. It's like the stars all kind of aligned yeah. and it worked great. And, you know, I was glad that I was there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, 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 you know, uh, these days uh, lately we we have been doing scrum uh, and and you know we, what you whatever you are talking is the scrum methodology or you know whatever the method yeah. in, in 96 and into 98 so people don't even know what scrum is and people don't even know the Correct. stand up or or uh, having you know all these uh, demos uh, and and uh, you know just talking openly right you know collaborating in in a, in an open way so i don't so i thought you know we we imp- you know, we improvised on certain things and we are doing this lately, but you know, this certain to be there for, for long, for long time. Yeah. Yeah. There's some overlap between his approach and what you consider scrum and yeah. agile, right? Like this meeting was, it wasn't the stand-up meeting cause it was longer <laughs> yeah, than yeah. that, but, but um, you know, kind of trying to break things up into smaller chunks and things like that. Yeah. Um, but we had a, you know, I, it's not the same as Scrum and Agile. I mean, that's a great methodology and I've worked in that environment as well. At, yep. at my last startup, that's how we did did things. Mm-hmm. But I don't think there's any one methodology that is always the only one that will yep. work. Like, you know, more than one can work. Sure. The good thing about Scrum is it's probably one of the most adaptable so it can work in the most yep. situations with the most people, which obviously is extremely valuable. Yep. What I described at that company maybe wouldn't work in other places because you have the right people, yeah. the team, the collaboration, but it works. It worked really well for us. Perfect. Yeah, that, that, it's it's good to learn and and good to understand that you know um, how the, that has been and how you know what are things worked and things didn't work right. Um, or, or you know I, I know it's also very subject to that particular company. I think as you said, you know many factors you know came together really well, but when when you take about you know other other startups that you have been in. So even though it hasn't always been the perfect combination, so uh, w- what are the you know uh, things that you have to you know uh, do just to make sure that you know things are going in the right direction and you know things are successful? Uh, to frame it in a different way, uh, maybe you know if I, if there is another startup, you know my things maybe you know VP and things uh, leadership is not you know gelling well or. Uh, there are, you know, multiple things going wrong, you know, be it in sales or be it in product. So how do you, you know, wh- what what was your experience? Do you have to deal with, you know, some of those scenarios or if yes, you know, how you dealt with it? Yeah, so you've given me the luxury of talking about all these really good ones. Yeah. Why don't we talk about a bad one? <laughs> <laughs> so the I guess it was the second to last startup for me. Uh, I was the VP of sales and marketing and that included product, product management as well. Mm-hmm. And we were making very different kinds of products, hardware, software products for industrial applications and lighting. Mm-hmm. And the company was not all on the same page. The CEO was a micromanager. Mm. The engineering team didn't believe anything that the product management people, including me, told them. They thought it was just a waste of time and that you know they knew they knew better 
because they had worked in this environment before. So they would just say, yeah, 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 whatever, and then go do their own thing. They would make their plans in secret, if you would, um, and not be open and share them. And so we were always like finding out, oh, wait, they're doing what? What are they doing? Right? (laughs) Instead of like this really open, collaborative kind of environment. And we were in a market, we were like, you know, pioneers in kind of a new way of doing things, but the market was starting to get commoditized. Mm-hmm. There were other people kind of copying us or doing something kind of like us, but at much lower prices and it put a lot of pressure on us. And so we needed some new products and we came up with some ideas for new products. And the CEO and the engineering team just said, nah, you know, maybe the salespeople should just sell, you know, better. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, the reason why you're having trouble selling isn't because the product's not right, it's because you all of a sudden, not as good at sales as you were for the last several years, um, which didn't seem likely to me, right? Um, and, and you know, we had a lot of arguments and battles over this. Um, and like, like I mentioned earlier, you know, the reason I left companies is because I stopped believing. Well, this was one of those cases where me and the CEO ultimately were just not on the same page. It didn't make sense for me to stay. Um, he didn't think that I should stay either. And so, uh, you know, I think... Uh, um, it was just, uh, you know, it doesn't always work. And even though this company had some level of success up until that point, mm-hmm. we were growing, it was, it was hard work and, you know, we weren't, we didn't trust each other ultimately, right? There wasn't that, that trust that if someone says, this is the way, this is something that I have to deal with, please help me deal with it and modify our plans. It was more like, you know, no one trusted anybody <laughs> ultimately wow. and, and, you know, I mean, not that we hate, you know, it, I, that maybe sounds worse than it is, but in terms of like, when I'm telling you what the customers are saying, people didn't believe it. When the engineers are telling me we can't do that, I didn't really believe them either, right? So it's, you know, because we had operated in this dis- dysfunctional way for so long, you kind of lose that trust. Yep. Um, and that makes the company very inefficient. So then like I'm spending time trying to validate what the engineering leaders are telling me and you know they're not believing what i'm saying the customers are telling us so they're you know you know not modifying the product plans or undermining what we're doing or the ceos undermining you know what i'm trying to do in sales yeah it's horrible um you want to know something really interesting is the the founder of both that company and the one that was my greatest experience is the same the same person whoa your mind is blown at this know, point right? your mind is blown yeah. because that you know i was framing my question in terms of the importance of ceo and then how they said that oh, but you know this is surprise, <laughs> surprise. <laughs> wow so i mean how, how is so that? but i think yeah so i mean i mean i i took the job the second time around because of that ceo because i thought i was good friends with him yeah. but what i realized in hindsight is you know, as I mentioned, when I, you know, described the first company, me and, you know, the VP of engineering, we were really the the whole company. I mean, it was just engineering, me, a finance person and a CEO, and we hired a few other people late in the game. But, you know, it was that product was the key. And the product was the founder's idea. But I was the one charged with turning it into a plan and working with engineering, as I described. And so that relationship with like, you know, the VP of engineering was so critical and he was such a strong leader yep. 
versus the other company. It was also a product-led company. Mm -hmm. um, the CEO did not have the idea at that time. It was the engineering leads had the idea. They came from this domain. The VCs brought the CEO to them to lead the company, which was perfectly fine because uh -huh. he had been successful before, of yep. course. And, um, and I joined because I thought the product idea sounded good. And hey, the CEO that I worked with before, we're, we're friends, yep. you know, but it was really the engineering leads were so different mm. that it just created this radically different culture that the CEO wasn't strong enough to fix. I don't think he was, I don't think he gets a ton of credit for the great culture in the first company because I don't think he, he didn't do anything bad, but he wasn't the key to it. Yep. But he definitely gets, in my mind, some blame for not being on top of this cultural problem in this company yep. and doing something to fix it because that really should have been his job. Yep. If like, you know, the culture is working great, there's nothing to fix. You can just sit back and watch. <laughs> but if it isn't working, someone's got to take action to fix it. And it never got fixed. And that was the ultimate downfall of the company. Wow. Uh, I think, I mean, I didn't see this coming uh, because, you know, <laughs> because of the obvious twist. reasons, right? Exactly. <laughs> so, I mean, this also explains the, you know, importance of, you know, one person or one leader uh, setting the tone. Because in previous uh, one, like you mentioned, the VP of engineering was so, you know, great on top of, you know, things. But here in the other, you know, with the same people around, you know, the CEO or, you know, with yourself. So, I think one leader maybe set the tone. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you know a couple of other leaders, you know, getting together and setting up the mm -hmm. tone that you know where it it operated like a typical toxic you know corporate environment. <laughs> even though it's a startup, because you know lack of mm -hmm. trust, you know, it is not something that startups can uh, accommodate in in the first place uh, at any stage, I guess. Uh, but but it. I, Wow, it, it is really shocking to see uh, this kind of culture from the same CEO. Uh, so it also, you know, because I had a mindset that hey, CEOs or, you know, founders set the tone, you know, uh, for the culture in the company. Yes. But it's also not always true because, you know, what the leaders or the, you know, the first hires also have to, you know, plays a big role because, uh, you know, they right. also set the team for their, you know, uh, hires. So I think it has to... Well, you know, here's the answer. Yeah. Here's the answer. I'm sorry, it's already... No, you're good. To you're good. Yeah. The, the common theme in both these companies is that the CEO had no impact on the culture. Hmm. That was a weakness of his, yep. I believe. Luckily, in that first company, the VP of engineering was so strong on the culture side and all the people were like working for him. I mean, I think I was a positive contributor to the culture but quite honestly if it wasn't for him yeah. you know it wouldn't have been successful right. and the engineering leads at the other company were not as strong and had some of the issues we described but the ceo was kind of like a no-op right it was a non-factor mm -hmm. right luckily for him the first one it worked out okay but the second one he didn't so yeah. there is you're absolutely right i think that the culture starts at the top mm -hmm. right and you know, if it's going well, it doesn't matter yep. if the CEO is part of it or not. It's like he's along along for the ride and everything's good. If it's not going well, then the CEO's job is to fix it. And really, it should never get off to a bad start, quite honestly. I was not as tuned in to the cultural issues until this company, to be honest with you, because, yeah. you know, I, I've been in companies that had good and bad cultures, but I didn't really, it didn't click. Mm. But the fact that this company went off the rails really made me think about why. 
And I think the culture does start at the top, but if there's a vacuum at the top, that's high risk, highly volatile situation. You don't know where you're going to end up. Agree. Um, and I think this might have set the tone for, you know, uh, our, you know, learnings for your next, you know, venture capitalist uh, investments or other things that because you kind of know how to evaluate the CEO or the importance of CEO or, or, or you know, multiple other uh, things, I guess, right? So, uh, so how do you, for example, if I want to uh, start a company or if anyone wants to start a company, uh, you know, the role of CEO is pretty, you know, evident and important, you know, be problem solving or uh, setting the tone for the culture and all. But how do, you know, we go, we should go about other hires in the company, um, you know, because it's not always possible to get that right, even though, but there, you know, it's like a manager, right? it's not, I think it takes time uh, to get the, you know, you know, just keep it going because I think it takes time to, uh, you know, even in relation, you know, you, it takes time to uh, understand each other or, or uh, you know, understand the pros and cons and, you know, work, work it out. Uh, and it, it, I think it's the same with the leadership uh, in the, particularly the first few hires in the company. But again, uh, so startups may not always have the time uh, to, you know, uh, establish that relation. And within this particular time, you know, things, many things can go wrong and, you know, which cannot be fixed. Uh, 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 you know, if it's culture or you know, if a few other things. So, what? How can you know? What is? I know. I know there is also no you know, uh, white and uh, black answer here. So, what is? What are the few precautions that founders can take? So to have to hide the right team and to start establishing the right culture, just so that these kind of mistakes, you know, uh, doesn't happen, or you know, they are very cautious about all the decisions, uh, you know, they're taking. Uh, and right from the get-go. Uh, yeah, well, that's a that's a big question. So, you know, I think starting a company starts with an idea. Like someone's got to say, this is what we're doing, and this is something unique, particularly yep. if it's a high-tech startup, right? Um, it's got to be something unique, different. It could be a unique um, technology. Mm-hmm. More often, it's a unique business model. Like we're going to go after this market segment and try to do it in a different way. Think about Uber, for example, right? Like Uber is the ultimate different business model, right? Because they were taxis. This is really different model, right? And so they had to build a lot of technology to make it happen. But ultimately, Uber is a business model innovation. So again, the, the kind of germ of the idea of the company usually starts with some new technical breakthrough or insight or some new business model observation, mm-hmm. or it's a combination of the two perhaps. So technical insights generally come from technical people, business model insights definitely come from business people. Yep. You need generally some of each to get a company really started, yep. right? And I think one of the mistakes that founders make is if you're a business person, you're underestimating the value of the technical side and think we can bring the technical people later, I'll outsource it. I don't really believe in that. I think products have a soul and the soul is kind of jointly owned by the business and technical founders. Similarly, a technical founder could say, well, I don't need these business people. Like I've got the technology. It's so awesome. The world will come beating a path to my door. We'll get, we'll get the business people later. And you really need both. And so I think that's, that's the key to starting. And then it's really like the culture, like we talked, talked about, you can, you know, you have a much greater chance of success with a 
kind of explicit, positive culture. I mean, I can talk about the ones that I think works the best. I don't think there's any one answer for culture. You can have multiple successful cultures. Yep. The key is it's got to be genuine and it's got to be followed, right? Because if it's if it's just like a bunch of things you put on a piece of paper on the wall and no one pays attention to it, it doesn't exist. And then, you know, you've got these unstable situations where the culture is just kind of flying around like whatever people are deciding to do. Yep. Like the company I talked about before where there was like a vacuum at the top from a cultural perspective. Yep. And it just, it's just like a crazy reaction. You don't know where it's, where it's going to go. Yeah. So I think w- once you have the core of the idea and the beginning of a plan, yep and you start bringing people on, you need a culture. But I think you're right that those founders have to really form a partnership. Um, It's like a marriage, but I think harder to get out of, to be honest with you, because I think, you know, the company doesn't exist without both, at least not at the the beginning stage. Maybe someday things will change and one of them can leave. But like having a founder leave a company early in its life is almost a death death blow. So you really need both. And they need to be of one mind. It doesn't mean that they need to be identical twins, but they need to have mutual respect and trust and a common view of the culture that they want to set you. They can't operate in different ways, you know, because that will send crazy messages to the company. So they've got to be very compatible, right? And so I think, um, you know, those are the most important things to get a company going. Obviously, you know, the quality of the idea, the size of the market, these are all the things you need to have to raise money. But I think I've learned over the course of my career that the biggest determinant to success is actually the culture of the company and the environment. Um, You know, this is kind of assuming that you have at least a good idea and there's a good market and you're hiring good uh, people. I mean, if you don't have that, you're kind of dead. But there's many companies that had that and failed miserably. Yeah. And a lot of that has to do with the culture. Yeah. And so the culture is the something you can actually control, yeah. right? Because you can set that standard. You can only hire people that meet it. You can get rid of people who don't fit, yeah. right? And, you know, it's just the way you operate. Yeah. And I think it's the most, you know, repeatable aspect yeah. of a company. And I think, you know, I've been lucky to have people that have worked with me over and over again over the years. And I think it's because of my style, right? They just feel good about the way that I treat them, the way that we work together. And so that feels comfortable and good for people. And they think it's a positive and hopefully they think that gives them a best chance of success. And so, you know, I think it really comes down to the culture in the end. And I think that doesn't get talked about often enough because it's a hard thing to talk about, but I've learned over the years that it's the most important thing. I agree. because it's it's setting the it it is also deciding the you know life and death of for a startup and you know you know for for many people uh, may, may not be life and death for many people but it's certainly uh, a great deal uh, for the people who have invested in time and effort in the in the company right but but the point here is you know um, understanding the significance of each role for example you know technical founders don't always focus on you know the sales and marketing or branding for a company which is equally important so understanding you know the importance of each uh, you know segment or each each business unit and then hiring people or you know even if you hire if you already have a people you know leaders there you know making sure they are you know aligned and on the same page uh, I think is, is the key because it, you know, that's, they're defending the soul for the product. So, 
it's real i think based on you know what i learned i think that is the key for you know um the success you know for be it for the product or you know in terms of the product or the culture uh, that way because it has to go hand in hand because even if you're building a great product you know if you can't sell it you know there is no way uh, you, the product can be great but it's not generating revenue which means that it's it's not uh, great so i think okay that those those are a very good insights uh, mike so th- thanks for those um so i want to you know sh- shift the shift the path a little bit here you know because we are you know talking about the culture uh, you know people and and uh, leadership level and things like that so but now i want to talk a little more on the you know technology or the product side uh, in the product market fit business model because as you said right i really you know believe in the uh, sales brand you know marketing or branding or the business model uh, in in the startup because you know technology is something that can be built uh, but if you don't if all these things doesn't come you know together along with the technology it's it's still a failure uh, in in my opinion so uh, so when you you know since you invested in multiple companies uh, so apart from the people and founders so what are the things that you normally observe you know how do you identify that the idea is worth giving a shot so i mean it it again varies but what are the steps that you take you know as a vc um yeah okay well i think you know like i said most companies come down to either technical innovation or a business model yeah innovation and you know obviously if you're going to invest you want to understand that market segment that they're going after mm-hmm. as much as possible so get inside the head of the target customer or the stakeholders like cuz if it's something sold to consumers but there's other stakeholders involved you know i think you know one of the things that i learned about myself is that i'm not a good consumer marketer so i don't i mean i understand myself as a like consumer but i don't understand consumers mm-hmm. <laughs> broadly right i think find it very hard to predict but i think b2b it's easier to kind of anticipate how business customers will react or what's important to them. Hmm. And so I think you know, I started doing investments in very similar spaces like for me it was network infrastructure. Yep. So I had multiple investments in that space. So I really understood that market segment. And with every company, I learned something new about that market segment which made me a better investor for the next one. Yep. So in addition to kind of understanding it, it's you have to bring it outside perspectives as part of the diligence process so have potential customers or people who are real experts in the space um weigh in about the product idea meet with the company um kind of really poke try to poke holes in what they're doing so you understand what the weaknesses are every startup has holes yep right because it's a brand new company yep. so the real key is what are you going to do about them yeah like how big a risk do they represent how can you mitigate that uh, risk yeah. or how will you know whether that risk is going to be fatal or not like mm-hmm. can you do something so you're going to learn about that risk early on so you can respond to it yeah. so you know i think definitely um for me it came down to kind of how the customers reacted to the product mm-hmm. and the people like we've spent a lot of time talking about people yeah. so i won't go over that yeah. more but that combination but i really like the people side because one of the things about the customers is they can change the environment can change it takes yeah. time to build a product 
Yep. And so the market can change, the needs can change, the competitive landscape can change yep. during that time. So you have to be able to respond and you need a team that's going to be always listening to the market and ready to respond to changes. Yep. Um, and, and I think if you have that, you know, there's a good chance of success. And, you know, from a like, you know, um, you know, technology perspective or even business model kind of advanced perspective, yep. it needs to be like a, you know, you know, 10x better and, you know, 10x better than what's happening now. Yep. Partly because you won't actually kind of achieve 10x, maybe you'll get six or seven. Yep. And that's still good, right? Yep. <laughs> um, but if you're not shooting for 10, you know, you're not going to get there. Sure. Something that's just marginally better just doesn't have a chance of breaking into the market. I mean, first of all, all the existing products are going to keep on getting better while yep. you're building your first one. So that gap is already narrowing. Yep. And if it's not significantly better enough to, on whatever, you know, metric, yep. then all the people you need to help support your product distribution channels, partners, whatever, or the customers themselves aren't going to be interested because it's like, eh, why should I take a risk on something new? Sure. There's not that much incremental benefit. Like, again, if you want to talk about Uber, like it was such a different experience yeah. than a taxi. There were so many dimensions that made it better yeah. that, you know, it's a slam dunk. And from a user experience, like, you know, I mean, once you've taken an Uber, like in the early days of Uber, you'd never take a taxi again. Sure, it's like, yeah. why would I ever do that? And so I think, you know, that was a more than a 10x better on the business model side yeah. and the user experience side. Yeah. So, you know, it also gets a little tricky, right? Uh, in my opinion, I know. How do you evaluate, um, you know, uh, it is 10x better? I understand that, you know, uh, you know, talking to customers is one thing. But, you know, that may not always give us all the insights or the confidence that we need to invest in the company. Uh, particularly from the product standpoint. Mm -hmm. So what are the things that you do to really understand, you know, uh, it is 10x better? Um, is, is more of a, you know, instinct or, uh, you know, just do some uh, research by yourself or is more uh, rely on the insights or the market, you know, evolution or, you know, what, what are exactly the things? It's a combination, to be honest with you. I think every investment you make as a VC, you've got to take that leap of faith, that yeah. last step where you're jumping into the abyss yeah. because you don't know and you can't get the information. Yeah. There's no way to know. Do you just believe they can get there? Mm. And that's where the fundamental kind of investment risk comes from because you can diligence out technology risks. You can diligence out execution risks and figure out, okay, they can do this the same way some other company did it, but that there's that leap of faith. Like, can they really deliver the full kind of 10 X better? And you're right, there's no way to really measure it. Some of it is, like when I described the user experience for Uber, there's no metric that says that's 10x or 20x yeah. or like 100x better from a taxi cab. Yeah. But, you know, you could just get comfortable, like it's so much better yep. that that's a business model that will be like sustained and the existing players, in their case, taxis, can never get there. Yeah. They, you know, they can never, ever get there. It's just so much different. So... In other products, it could be technical specs, it could be performance, it could be price, it could be, you know, some feature set combination that other people don't have the expertise to put together. Mm -hmm. It could be business model differences, yep. so much cheaper, so much easier, easier to integrate. 
whether it's really 10x or not is a little bit of a judgment call. Sometimes you can measure it. Yep. Sometimes it's just a judgment call. Yep. What I always liked were ones where there was a combination of things. It wasn't just we're betting that this technology is going to be that much better. Like we have to go develop it. We think we can. But, you know, were there multiple factors that made it better, not just the technology? It's the, you know, like um, technology plus the business plan, plus we had this unique team yep. of people. It was all three. And, you know, then you have a little better chance of withstanding the fact that one of those three legs of the stool maybe isn't quite as strong as you thought. Yep. Got it. So it's, you know, it's obviously a combination of uh, multiple things, but, you know, technology, business plan, and, and the team, um, is, are you know maybe few core factors that that you kind of consider i guess okay that's that's good to know uh you know and particularly i think even you know this is something that founders sh should you know obviously understand right what are the things that you know vcs evaluate you on and so that you also know you know because i mean they're judging the company in a way so you also know what you'll be judged by which also means because there is a reason they're judging right which which are the core factors that decides the life of a company so i think it's important for founders to understand uh, uh, thanks for sharing those so but when you are you know other other you know i just want to go a little deeper into this vc world um, so when you are a vc you are obviously investing in you know multiple companies or tens or you know maybe even hundreds of uh, you know companies so how do you uh, because Based on you know, based on what I see, what I see or I've seen, um, there are some you know, products that raised millions of dollars. Even though that does, you know, I have no idea how that happened based on the products that I see. So it's not always the fact that you know it's just the product or you know certain things. Maybe the network can help or you know things like that. So, but irrespective of all those, how how the how VCs get a hold of all these you know tens of product and how do they evaluate and how do they you know mitigate the risk factors in in all the products that they invested um well, there's a couple of things one is you have to keep in mind that the vcs are in a port portfolio right mm -hmm. so they can take an outsized risk with any one investment yep. because they've got all the other investments right they won't they won't all fail, hopefully, yep. <laughs> right? Yep. So, um, and the ones that are successes are such big successes that they cover up a lot of failures. Yep. You know, you only lose lose your money once, but you can make it back 10, 10x on a great deal. So, you know, I think that um, it's hard to understand. I mean, I think some of these things like, you know, how did this product raise all this money? Like, it doesn't make sense. A lot of it is, the connection, the track record of the team, mm -hmm. the ability for the CEO to be a fantastic salesperson and sell sell the dream, yeah. right? Um, and like I said, a lot of VCs are happy to take really big swings, knowing that they're going to miss some of the time. And it doesn't matter that much to they if they miss, but to the people at the company, it matters a lot, right? Because it's their only job. Yep. That's one of the real differences between those two sides of the of the table, if you would. But I think, you know, for each deal, VCs usually try to mitigate the risks that they can they can identify um, with, you know, technology. You might make sure that the team hires some really strong people in certain areas to make sure that they get that tricky part of the product best done. Yep. Um, or you're hiring people that really know the customer set. They've got existing customer contacts. So that helps jumpstart the sales process, et cetera. Um, 
or you know you try to carefully do the business plan of you know how much money you're going to give the company and what they'll have to show at that point and you know have the discipline to say this isn't working i'm not going to fund this any further yeah. particularly for very early stage investing for seed investing you know yeah. not every seed investment deserves a follow on investment yeah. like if they're inherently risky some percentage of them should not go further yeah. but for each individual company someone's got to make the decision this one is not going to go further and not everyone will even agree with that decision the people at the company tend to have blinders on. They really think like, this is the best company in the world and we're doing the greatest thing ever. Um, but the objective data may say otherwise. Yeah. And so I think, um, you know, that's how VCs try to balance the risk and mitigate. But the most important mitigation is that they've got a port portfolio of uh, companies. Yeah. Right. So the yeah. particular concentration of risk for one company mm -hmm. is still an isolation of risk in their port portfolio. Yeah, got it. So it's it's more of you know balancing their you know hedging their bets so that uh, but you know uh, where if it if thing if most things work you know uh, you know they make ten x or even hundred x on a particular company even though if those don't work I think they have you know certain investment which can probably balance out uh, for for the loss. Uh, right, as long as some of them have yeah. these really big returns. Got it. I mean, you can have a time. Sometimes, in like when there was the market crash in the early two two thousands, there were firms where every single company went out of business and none of them made money. Yeah, and the firm lost everything. Yeah, there were those things existed. Yeah. Um, that was really the market dragging everything down. In more normal times, outside of a bubble, because that was really kind of a bubble type environment, that's not like that happened, right? I mean, yeah. let's, if you're smart enough as a VC and smart enough about picking your investments, some of them are going to work out. Yeah. The better VCs have more of them work out, yeah. but you know, some of them are probably going to end up working out well enough. And like I said, when you lose money, you only lose it once, yeah. but when you make money, you tend to make it multiple, multiple times. times. Yeah. That is, that is the key. Okay, cool. That, that's, that's good to know. Uh, I know we are also, you know, running out of time uh, here. Just want to ask, couple of more questions and we can, you know, you can keep this really short because I think these are important for, you know, our startup founders, um, you know, to know from particularly to learn from your experience, you know, with um, multiple startups, right? So I'm sorry, you actually froze on me for a second. So I didn't hear what you said. I apologize. Uh, no, you're good. Uh, so just want to understand uh, these two, you know, two, I ask you two questions, you know, before wrapping up, because I think these are really important for, you know, founders to know and learn particularly from your experience. So, but, you know, as, as a founder, you know, how can, you know, um, I uh, improve the arts of getting funded by VC? Uh, let's say, you know, I have a decent product, you know, maybe a decent team, but still, you know, I don't have that, you know, maybe uh, extra charm or, you know, extra uh, buying, you know, selling ability or, you know, things like that. So as uh, what are the things that I can do to improve my arts of, Know, getting funded because and particularly you know the early stage funding right because i may not have everything you know i may just have the idea you know there are things there are times when people invested just in the idea without even having the product right so what what are the things that you know uh, founders do in the in the, uh, in the very particularly in the very early stages i think getting people who know your market attached to the company they could be advisors they could just be friends of the company 
but people with credibility to the VCs. Mm -hmm. So it kind of experienced serial entrepreneurs who've been successful, who know the market you're in and get them attached to the company, get them excited. Maybe they'll write a, you know, angel check. Maybe they'll be on the board of advisors. Maybe they'll just be your friend, but people like that have incredible credibility to a VC. So if someone like that tells their VC friend, you know, Rohit is doing something amazing. I can't believe how good this is. Mm. It's super exciting. You should take a look. Yeah. You're halfway there. Sure. You, you're literally halfway there, yeah. right? Um, now, this is always easier said than done. I think one of the most important skills for an entrepreneur is to be a great networker. Yeah. You don't have to necessarily be a great pitch person. Uh, it, it certainly helps. But you've got to be a good networker because you've got to get these people attached to your company for the reason yeah. I just said. Yeah. If it's just you and your co-founder toiling away and you kind of emerge with this plan and want to get people to look at it, then no one knows who you are. Yeah. If you haven't started a company before, yeah. the odds are very much against you. How do you get the VCs to even look at your deal? Yeah. You're going to email it to them. It goes in the pile with a thousand other plans. Yeah. Some very junior person will look at it for five seconds and decide whether they're going to take a deeper look or not. Hmm. That's literally what happens. Yeah. So the way to beat those odds is to not go in the door that way. Instead, to yeah. go in the door with a recommendation from someone who has a ton of credibility in the market segment that you're trying to get to. Got it. So it's, it's more of, you know, identifying your target people uh, or, you know, target investors and, you know, finding a way to, you know, uh, uh, you know, reach uh, them with, with the right message, you know, be it, uh, in the, be it with some credible persons or maybe your friends or family or whatever it is, but they need to understand and read the message or get the message so that, you know, they get enough time, you know, they get uh, enough exposure on the idea maybe you know that's when they can start spending time and if it even goes with the credible person the chance of you know getting funded are you know really increase i think this this is also you know uh, the area where most of the you know um, maybe tech founders are not <laughs> good at right you know it's not always it's networking is not easy for everyone uh, but i think this is the key and and uh, you know going around and you know finding a way to you know network is is uh, the key in this case i guess so and I think, you know, along with that, you know, selling the vision of the company, you know, and getting people, you know, making people attached to the idea, you know, the way that we convey is, is equally important. I think which also may might come with experience or, you know, maybe uh, experience of interacting with multiple VCs, uh, I guess. So just deviating the, from a little bit, uh, right? So you have seen multiple startups and invested in multiple, you know, companies. So in my, in my opinion, I think, uh, you know, life in general follow certain patterns which are you know in a way if you look at in abstract away so many you know factors it's everyone is you know going through the same journey or same pattern just in one or the other way so i believe it can, you know it is also the same case in startups right uh, so uh, from 10000 feet or you know even from million feet uh, view the journey is kind of the same maybe when you get deeper things can change uh, and things uh, maybe here, but in terms of the patterns, it is pretty common. In, in my opinion, I might be wrong. So, just want to understand from your standpoint: is that the case, or if yes, you know, what are the typical mistakes that most startups make uh, in general? You know, not not related, not particularly in with VC world, but in general, what are the uh, uh, mistakes the startups make, which can be avoided? You know, if they if if they are cautious, or you know, if they are aware of it. 
Well, the most common mistake I think is not listening to the customer. Mm. So the customer's telling you something when they decide they're not buying, when they say they want a certain feature, they're telling you something. And the most common mistake is you don't believe them. You dismiss it. You think the customer's wrong. The customer's dumb. The customer doesn't really understand. Yeah. I mean, it happens over and over again. They're not the one that's dumb. The dumb person's the one who's the founder, right? (laughs) Because they have to, you know, the customers are the ones you have to reach and either decide you're reaching different customers or listen to what they're saying. But those are the only options, right? And so I think the most common mistake is the founders who believe that the rest of the world just doesn't get it. Like if they would just listen or pay attention or, you know, try it or whatever, they would see how awesome the thing is that you've built. Maybe, but, you know, if people over and over again are not buying it or not trying it or not using the product or whatever, there's a reason, right? And so I really like kind of, you know, almost guerrilla marketing type tactics of things that won't scale, but gets the product really in the hands of people where you can observe them doing something, right? Right. Like, you know, knocking door to door, putting up flyers, finding some group of users that you can go and present to and get them all to try the product. Yeah, that won't scale, but you can get much better feedback and you have to use that early on to shape what you're doing to validate what you're doing. And a lot of founders don't want to kind of get their hands dirty with that type of activity because it doesn't sound very glamorous and, you know, they don't see how they would scale it, but that's not really the point. The point is to do whatever it takes to get that early customer feedback and then listen very, very closely to it. Agreed. Um, You know, the customer obsession, right? You know, they they know better uh, if we ask the right questions and, you know, listening to their feedback and, uh, finding a, you know, filtering out the noise and then, uh, you know, translating it to the insights in, in a way that works for a company is, is the key. Um, but again, yeah, go, I think it's, the point is clear. Uh, listen to the customer and, and you know, find a way to uh, keep listening to the customer, you know, every day in, in every step of the process, right? Uh, cool. Thanks for sharing that. So, you know, if you also look at, you know, companies like Amazon, um, so they are, I think they have certain processes and mechanisms in place where um, they let people, you know, uh, really focus on, you know, customers and things like that. So, so that, that being said, you know, um, there are in multiple people, you know, many, many people in corporate world who wants to become a founders at some point or who wants to, you know, try the startup world uh, or, you know, become leaders in the startup world. So, but it's you know when you're in startup you know when you're in the corporate world you know your our our view is very limited and uh, the things that we get to try are equally limited as well so but how can we you know um, use our existing you know um, culture or you know how can we use the corporate experience and then eventually start preparing for the startup world. You know, maybe, maybe if I'm an engineer, I don't know much about sales marketing or product, you know, I don't know how to, 
you know deal with uh, customers or how to you know get customer feedback things like or maybe the marketing strategies you know i am i maybe i don't know all of those but there are certain r- real things that i need to understand if i have to become a successful entrepreneur you know after after my corporate world exit right so just just curious to understand whether you have any uh, insights or or opinions on this well i think quite honestly you have a much greater chance of success at a startup if you've had some broader experience. Um, It could be at a startup where you're a more junior person learning from a mentor, like I described earlier in my career. Mm -hmm. It could be, um, but I think it is much more likely to be in a big company seeing how things are done well at scale. You know, one of the things that I always believed is that you can't use the kind of excuse of being small as a way to to cut corners on, quality or how you're doing things in a startup. Um, and so I think you can learn a lot of best practices from a big company about how to how to develop product in a structured way, how to run a product management process, yep. how to have a sales process. All, all these things you can learn in a bigger company. And either you have a mentor who's going to teach you or you're going to learn it somewhere else. You can't make it up uh, correctly. And so I think it's pretty common to have founders who come out of bigger companies have learned a lot of good stuff from big, big companies yeah. and um, then kind of apply that in some new market segment in, in the startup world. You know, there's a few people like a, like a Steve Jobs, although he actually did work in a bigger company for a bit. Um, Bill Gates, Mark Zuckerberg, kind of, you know, uh, wonder kind uh, type of people who, you know, drop out of college and with no experience start these gigantic companies. That's extremely rare. It is much more common that the founders had a bunch of corporate experience. Like when I look at my, all the people that I started companies with, you know, other than that first company where we were all right out of college, we all had experience doing something like what we were doing. Um, We either got it at another startup or we got it at a bigger company. And, you know, that made us much more effective operators, which I think you need in a startup because you don't have margin for error. You can't screw it up. Oh, we wasted three months because we were doing it wrong. That's a death, a death blow to a startup. So because you need to execute really well to be successful, you need experience. Got it. No, yeah, makes sense. So it's, it's, it's a really valuable, you know, uh, to learn from corporate experience. But I think, you know, even when we are in a corporate world, it's not, we are so focused on our job, but I think understanding the business in general, if you are engineer, you know, understanding sales or, you know, marketing or as like our product, I think are equally important um, here, I guess. Uh, cool. Th- thanks for sharing that. I think I, I, I was asking that question for myself if I, if I realize. So I thought so. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> just, just trying to get, get, uh, get some insight here. Uh, cool. Uh, so, I mean, I have like tons of questions to ask, but I, we are also at time. So there is one last question that I always ask for, uh, for you know, people. I know you already shared so many learnings and insights so far, but one thing that I really want to end with is, you know, this one, right? So can you help us learn something in two minutes that helps, you know, that took you so long to learn? Well, I think... The skill that I've probably got the most mileage out of, I'm not sure this is exactly the answer. I'm not sure I'm exactly answering the question the way you've asked it. But the skill that I got the most mileage out of was time management. So at that very first startup that I mentioned with the mentor, 
we took a time management class. We brought in someone who like taught a class on how to manage your time. I still remember everything that that person told me. I remember their name. It was 40, 40 years ago, right? Yeah. So um, I, it really just changed how I ran my life, both at work and out. And really, you know, anyone who knows me would, uh, would tell you, like, I get more out of my time than almost anyone else they know. I'm organized, I'm focused, I'm efficient. And I learned all those skills from this time management thing. And it's, it's so important, not just to get stuff done in your day, but like in a startup environment, like we talk about, there's so many things to do. And how do you get that work-life balance? Well, you've got to be good at taking advantage of the time you have, um, but also helps in my personal life in terms of being organized and structured and getting the most out of that time as well. Yeah. And so I think, I mean, I can't teach you time management in two minutes, but what I can tell you is um, it's something you should really focus on. I actually have written like a little presentation that I've used at companies where I've worked to share how I manage my time with other people. Um, I don't know if that's a good pod podcast though, but I do think that, uh, you yeah. know, learning how to, and there's not, you know, just like so many things in life, there's not only one way to do it. Sure. I could talk about how I do it, how I learned to do it. But there's a, probably 50 other ways that are sure. equally effective. You have to do it in a way that works works for you. Yeah. But, you know, the most important lesson that I have or that I tell people is you're the CEO of you. So the way you spend your time, you're totally in charge of that. Yeah. 100%. So act like a CEO. Make sure you're using that time wisely. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I, th I mean, this is one of the biggest lessons. Um that you helped me helped us learn, you know, you were the CEO of your own company uh, or so you're CEO of yourself and, you know, uh, use it wisely. You know, I think we need to be as critical as we will be in a startup, you know, if we are a founder, right? Because we do, I think, you know, at least myself, I haven't given the, you know, the importance to time, you know, as much as you know, I should have uh, given, you know, but I, it's also good to know that, you know, these things, should be learned because you know time management is something i think that i thought i never thought that you know i would go there and learn about it because i thought you know that all comes with experience or you know that varies based on you know circumstances things like that but i think that can be engineered as well um I, i'll definitely go you know um learn about it in some or the other way but you know if you have in you know, a presentation that you can share with me or you know obviously this is a that is a great topic for another part but we can talk about that later but if you have, you know, any insights that you, you know, can share with me, that will be real helpful. And if you can help, you know, if you're okay, you know, I, I can just upload it, you know, attach it with the video so that, you know, many, many other people can learn about it too. And, and uh, you know, the reason for this podcast is it may, it may not be viral or it may not be like, you know, so impactful for, you know, hundreds of founders. You know, it, it, that's not the expectation. Even if it is helping, you know, 10 people just like me, I think that's still a big win for me. I think we also talked about it, you know, when we met, but, but, you know, that is how I'm going with this podcast. So be, I think, so time management is definitely a great topic, at least, you know, it will help, you know, see many people out there. Um, cool. You know, I, again, as I said, I can keep on going, uh, you know, uh, about the conversations with you because uh, for many reasons, one is you carry that passion, you know, and energy to, you know, drill down and, you know, um, share all your learnings uh, and, and, you know, the way that you convey the message or, you know, the learnings is, is really unique uh, as well. So, which is another reason, you know, um, the more I speak, you know, the more I, I learn and gain. Um, but the other important factor is how can I carry this forward? 
uh, you know, in my life. I think, you know, I can just keep this video in, in a repeat loop whenever I needed some <laughs> insight, I guess. So, and that's the beauty of both the podcasts are, you know, some gathering the knowledge, I guess, right? So, but anyway, uh, thank you very much, Mike. You know, it's been such a, such a pleasure and, you know, such a great learning experience. I hope, I'm pretty sure that many people will be able to learn from this. So, you know, thanks for your time and effort. And I know I took in a little more time um, and may not be <laughs> a good candidate, you know, in, in, your, in your time management. We'll talk course. about that. Uh, later, we'll talk about more. that. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, I really appreciate it. And thank you very much, Mike. Uh, again, thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank it was you. a lot of fun. Look yep, forward to doing it again. Perfect. Awesome. That's what I want to hear. Uh, thank you. Um, okay. Yep. Talk to you soon. Yep. 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 Take care. Bye-bye. Yep. Bye-bye. Yep.